here, I wind up looking completely different. If you don't recognize me, I don't have flip-flops on, I get it, it's okay. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for your son. I thank you that you died on the cross. And I thank you that you came back to life. And I thank you that you saved me. I thank you that you offer that to everybody. I, I thank you for your spirit and that you teach us your word by that. And so I beg you this morning that you teach your word to your people. And just push me aside and... I'll be up here physically, and my mouth's going to keep moving, but that, that you would do all the work. Um, let, let them hear it. Let them be changed by it, as you're a God worthy of us changing for. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. So, as we've seen from the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters lay out the doctrines of the New Testament. This is God's righteousness, all right, revealed to us about before and after the cross. And, and we began to see last week, when Rich was teaching, chapters 12 through 16 lay out the believer's righteous responses to those realities. Today we pick up again in verse 3 and continue through verse 8 to see righteousness demonstrated in our reasonable service in the body of Christ, the church, called by God in Ephesians 4.16, a body fitly joined together, to paraphrase, a house fitly framed, and done so by spiritual gifts. That's the context of what we're talking about here. Today is not the day for an exhaustive study of those gifts. Okay? I'm not going to go through and, and work out every single gift in here, and especially not every gift in every place in the Bible. Um, there's two reasons for that. <laughs> One, we don't have time. I'm pretty sure that I can teach on that for 12 hours straight. Anybody who's been in a class with me, ask them. Okay, uh, I'm very sure I'd be the only one here long before I was done, and I'd only be halfway finished. So the other reason, the second one, is that we have a class on spiritual gifts. It's, it's available. Anybody uh, who is faithful to come to the classes here will teach you, okay? You remember the giant red dots out there in the foyer, foyer, whatever you want to call it? The lobby. Uh, you know what, and, and by the way, I did not notice those huge as they are, until Jeff said from the pulpit, how could you miss those? Well, I missed them. I've <laughs> been seeing them every time since then, and I always think of that. All right, so today I don't need to expound on the topic of every single individual spiritual gift, because if you want to learn that, be faithful to show up for the class on that. Instead, we begin with the right perspective from which to build, versus the wrong preoccupation. Read with me, Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Our perspective began last week with Paul beseeching, begging, pleading. And just as he does in Romans 12, 1, he does in Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. It's a parallel passage, the context of spiritual gifts. Paul asks us to walk worthy with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. It sounds pretty, pretty humble, right? Like Philippians. There is the humility that should mimic Christ, that God would die on the cross out of love for us. 
Even so, we should die daily to our selfishness, our preoccupation with us for others' sakes. That perspective matures with a clear view of ourselves as we are, as Christians, a view with faith foremost. For this, we need a sober mind. All right? You see that in, in Romans 12, 3? Think soberly. Use your brains. Sober. Acts 26, 25, Paul talks about a sober mind. He's, he's speaking before an audience there, and he says, I'm not mad. I'm, I'm sober-minded. All right? But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. He's a, a king, a guy of very high authority. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness. 2 Corinthians 5.13, Paul uses it in contrast to being beside oneself. Side note, I taught English for a long time. Do you know that most of our cliches and phrases come from the Bible? Leopard can't change his spots. I'm beside myself. You're crazy. Okay. A sober mind is a sound mind. 1 Thessalonians 5.6, Paul connects precisely those two things, a sober mind and a sound mind. So what does a sober, sound mind do? According to Peter, 1 Peter 1.13, a sober mind is connected to hoping to the end. And, and later there, Peter tells us, 1 Peter 4.7, that it, the end of all things is at hand, so we should watch and be sober. Why? 1 Peter 5.8, be sober and vigilant because we have an enemy, an adversary. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's no wonder Paul, too, wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 5 or 6 to watch and be sober. Pay attention. Wake up. We use the word sober to talk about being not drunk with wine or alcohol or whatever. You ever seen somebody who's really drunk? They can't walk straight. They don't know when a car is coming to hit them. They can't see danger in front of them. Okay, get a sober mind. Get an eternal perspective. All right? Taking it all together, a sober mind is what aged men and elder women have. Check out Titus 2, 2, and 4. It's exactly who he talks about and what they need to teach the younger men and women. Titus 4, 2, 4, and 2, 6. The women, young women and the young men. When you get older, and I don't know this because I'm not older. According to them, I'm older, but some of y'all. The ones who remember me in 1982. That far-sighted, far-flung vision is a view of eternity that young men and young women usually lack, but when you get older, when the days you have left are shorter than the days you've had, you know what, the present, it, it, it fades back a little bit. When you're younger, you guys, and you guys, and if you're anybody else who's under my age, because that's who's young, you guys, you know. The, the present seems so intense when you're young. Forever is so far, far away. The galaxy, far, far away. You know, the, the view of life from the end is what Paul connects to living righteously and godly as we deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's how he phrases it in Titus 2.12. In Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul puts it a little differently. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So before we go any further, do you know where you'll spend eternity? As a small crowd today, most of you guys braved some serious snow to get here. Unless you live in the apartments across the street, you had some work to do. I know most of you, you think you know where you're going to spend eternity. Do you know? 
Are you sure? The Bible says you can be. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed the gospel that Christ, God Almighty, came to earth and lived a perfect, sinless, spotless, blameless human life while still maintaining all of his deity, all of his godness? And then he took on the blame that we deserve. He took all the sin on himself and died on the cross a horrible death and then came back to life and beat death and offers us eternity with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And it is that and that alone that we trust to be saved. And when you trust in that, eternity. Right? You know where you're going to wind up. So you should have a sober mind. It shouldn't be that hard to pay attention, to set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth, to think about where you are spiritually, seated with Christ in heavenly places. In this mindset, on Christ, on his throne, on a spiritual present and a physical future up there. Man, that's cool. (laughs) You know, when life is just really hard, someday this will all fade away and I'll be with Jesus. With that perspective, that's a sober mind. We begin to build like a master carpenter who sees the end of the edifice, he, he understands what the building's supposed to look like when he's done with it. Before we start, we see that we must lay out our blueprints then. Check to see that we build by sound measure, right? I, I'm not a gifted person with that kind of stuff, okay? I, you know, measure once and cut twice, right? Paul Hutchison's employed me to do construction work before he understands. It, it's, it's not how I'm gifted. But I do understand the concept of draw, draw it down before you do it, get all the measurements accurate, exact, and then do it exactly the way you drew it down, and it'll work. Build by a sound measure. But, but look back there in Romans 12.3. It says that God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith, not a measure of faith. It's not individual. It's the same. The same measure of faith. So, so what's this measure? It comes according to Christ's standard unit. Ephesians 4, 7, and 8 explains it to us. It tells us that to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The gift that is Christ, but more importantly, Christ who, when he ascended up on high, gave gifts unto men. And the context that follows, remember that Ephesians 4 That's a parallel passage to this. The context is spiritual gifts. The the gift that is the measure given to every man of faith is the Holy Spirit of God. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 7, another parallel passage on spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, along with Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, spiritual gifts are the manifestation of the Spirit given to every man. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit, and thus every Christian has spiritual gifts. You got saved, you got the Holy Spirit, and you got spiritual gifts. Don't know what they are? Okay. That doesn't mean you don't have them. Do you know, in sober-minded, eternal perspective, what this means we should think of ourselves? We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Well, how how ought we think of ourselves? Consider briefly with me the things that the Bible tells us God measures. Okay? 
He measures the earth. Job 38, 5, Isaiah 42, check them out. They both talk about God being the one who measures the earth. That means that both the vastness of our world, planet earth, the minutia of every grain of sand, every particle of dust, is how God says it there in Isaiah, the dust. (laughs) God measures all that. He understands everything big and everything small. And he measures the waters, Job 28, 25, and Isaiah 40, verse 2. Again, water is that life-giving, precious liquid. It covers the majority of our planet, from, from tiny puddle to massive ocean. It makes up the majority of our bodies. We're mostly water. Go figure. God pays attention to all of that. And, and waters in the Bible also include the supernatural deep, the waters of the deep. That's the boundary between this world and the unseen world spiritual realm. God, God measures those things. That's what God gets out his, his ruler for. He says he measured out a gift to us, his divine spirit. And I, I think if God measures things out on the scale of you know, the earth, the oceans, eternal deep, I think the gift he measured out to us must be pretty important. And that means he thinks we're pretty important too. This is a gift that speaks to the love of a bridegroom for his intended. Okay? Uh, how many of you have scraped together more money than you thought you could to buy a rock? Put it on a lady's finger? I did that. I liked it so much I did it twice for the same girl. Not kidding. <laughs> she said yes twice. We got married once. In fact... In, in Ruth, chapter 3, verse 15, we, we find this guy Boaz, all right? And, and he's talking to, to Ruth, and he's told her, I'm, I'm going to marry you, basically. And he measures out a gift for her. Okay, it's a gift of grain. But hey, it's an agrarian society. Grain is important to farmers, all right? Matters. It's a lot more practical than diamonds anyway. What are you going to do with that? You can't eat a diamond. Boaz measures out a gift for his bride, the bride he intends to claim, just as soon as he's taking care of all he has to, to fulfill the law. Think that one through. He's the kinsman redeemer who's going to go fulfill the law to make sure he can take care of his Gentile bride-to-be. That should sound familiar. What better engagement ring, then, for the bride of Christ than a part of the Godhead, the Trinity, indwelling us and giving us gifts, too, while, while we wait for Jesus to come back. I'll take the Holy Spirit over barley corn any day. I'll take him over a diamond ring. <laughs> seeing ourselves in the eyes of our beloved, seeing clearly self measured as worth the cross and all that Christ endured to fulfill the law and free us from sin should save us from a sea of selfishness that's our natural state, by the way. That's our preoccupation with us and the sin that so easily besets us. And it should aid us to measure well, by the way, when, when we look at others. Christ warned us this in three of the Gospels, in Matthew 7, 2, in Mark 4, 24, in Luke 6, 38, three times. And God, you know, if he says something three times, it's probably kind of relevant. He warns the disciples. Now, I know he probably only warned them once, but he put it for us in three places. He admonished them that the measure that they meet to others is the measure by which we'll be meted out. 
But what we, how we judge others is how we'll be judged. So, what measure are you going to use to judge? I don't think I want to judge. Judge not, lest you be judged. Yeah, I'm not judging anybody. No, you're going to be judged. Judged by the measure of Christ. We should judge by the standard of Christ. If God loves me enough that he gave himself for me, why would I ever feel any need to put myself above anybody else? What? Why do I need to step on anybody to get any higher? Christ's already seated me in heavenly places. How much higher am I going to get? If, if Jesus Christ loves me enough that he became obedient unto the death of the cross, why do I ever feel a need to slink lower than where he's put me? I'm seated in heavenly places with Christ. What shame and guilt can you lay on me? I don't, I'm there, man. If I mess up, I'll go talk to him. He's the one I'm sitting next to at the wedding supper. Genuine humility means no jealousy and no pity parties. Okay? Genuine humility means a healthy self-esteem. I don't like the term, but you understand it. So your mind's ready, sober-minded. You've got your affection set on things above. The plans are set. You understand how valuable you are to God because of what he did for you, because of how he values you. With that perspective... The right principle by which to build is found in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. Read with me. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, God says that we have the manifestation of the Spirit, and it is given to every man, every Christian, every believer, man, woman, okay, Human, that's the word there. And God continues through Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 11 to tell us that the Spirit divides to every man severally. What's several mean? Seven? No, several, separate, like severed, okay? All you children who, for some strange reason, like watching gross stuff, or biology class, where you severed the poor planarian. Anybody remember the planarian? The worm that's the same on both, right? Come on, there's a biology teacher here somewhere, right? Anybody? Coach, where you at? Okay. You, you cut. The Holy Spirit has cut up the gifts he's given separately to everybody. Every individual believer has separate gifts. In Ephesians 4, 7, we saw that every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We build single measured units, single members. We make friends. It's our job to reach out to individuals. God loves individuals. The Bible's full of individuals, okay? Adam and all those names in the genealogies that you fly through. And like, oh, Enoch is the seventh. Or Methuselah, he was old. Noah, he didn't flood. Noah, I remember Noah, <laughs> right? Think about it. Adam to Abraham, Eve to Sarah. Ladies, you're in there too. Moses to Joshua, Rebecca to Rahab, Samuel to David, Ruth to Bathsheba, Solomon to Daniel, the Shulamite bride to Esther, Mary to Peter, John to Paul and so many more names. All those genealogies. God knew all those names. God knows all your names. He said something about sparrows fall, and he knows it. You're more important than sparrows. He knows the number of hairs on your head. You really matter to him. He's paying attention to you. David wrote in Psalm 139, 16, that God, in his book, wrote all the members of his body, 
when as yet there was none of them. There is no child unborn that God has not seen ere it leaves the womb. He knows y'all. He's known you since before you started. And he died for you before you started. And this, for that, this is the love of God the Father for the Son before the foundation of the world, it says in John 17, 24. Because the Son chose the cross, God Almighty God chose before the foundation of the world, according to 1 Peter 1.20, before he made a man and his bride and put them in a garden with free will to choose life in obedience or to choose disobedience and sin and death. Before that, God knew, I'm going to make them. And God knew they're going to mess up. But I love the thought of them so much. Before I found this thing, before I start this thing, before I build any of it, I'll choose to die. God chose to shed his precious blood for his creations, human souls, individuals, and God gives the Holy Spirit to indwell those who accepted his sacrifice, and each individual becomes a unique expression of God's grace to the world. And we all have, if we're Christians, if we've chosen him, particular abilities and responsibilities. Look at that word. All members have not the same office. An office is a responsibility. You've got to show up for work. We have duties to perform. The Bible clearly identifies at least two of those in the New Testament, the bishops and the deacons. Bishop, by the way, it's just a pastor of a local church. It's not some crazy hierarchy or anything like that. Just look up the word. Both of them are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 10, respectively. And... You know, God talks about a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, and there's stuff to compare it to that it's not quite the same as in the New Testament. Well, the word office is used mostly in the Old Testament, and it's used mostly to talk about the priesthood and the Levites. Interestingly enough, God calls us, in 1 Peter 2, 5, priesthood. Wow. The office of the priesthood is the primary one of the whole Bible, and it includes things like worship leaders and all different kinds of service with different instruments, not just worship instruments, but different stuff. They had bowls and knives and fire and all kinds of different stuff, all these different things that they were responsible to serve God with. Now, we don't have a temple where we go kill animals, which is good. PETA would really be after us if we killed as many animals as they did in the Old Testament. Humane society would really be mad. But, but, but we do have a spiritual priesthood. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And so, I'm just going to make an assumption. I know those are dangerous, but I may not know all the responsibilities individuals have in the local body. There's too many of you for me to figure it out, quite honestly. But I'm sure we all have them. Because we all have, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says ye and you and your, those are plural. We lost ye a long time ago. I don't know why. English was a better language back then, I think. I mentioned I taught English. (laughs) We are all called to present our bodies and be transformed by renewing of the mind. We all have spiritual gifts. And just as I'm sure of that, I'm sure it is selfish to withhold those abilities from the body. Do you know what you do, Christian, wherever you are, 
if you're here today on the snowy day? Do you know what you do when instead of giving all you have to the place that God has placed you, you pull away? So this brings us to, to the need to build the same membership. And we're supposed to be a family. The body of Christ as a whole is the very purpose of these gifts. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, it's not edifice word, that's that building of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all, 1 Corinthians 12.7. That with all word, it's with all. Okay? As in to share with all the church the spiritual gifts that you've been given. These gifts should make us incredibly unified. They come from the self-same spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All the members of the body are one body. We're all in Christ. Members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones, it says in Ephesians 5.30. God puts it in Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 6 this way. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, and one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And in case you forgot Romans 6, that baptism is the spiritual one that puts you into Christ, okay? Now, it's not the water thing, although that's really cool, and they preached a great message. Go hug them or something when you get done here. One God and Father. Spiritual gifts are given to make the church function as a unit. One. Unified. Together. One big happy family. So when you fail to accept that responsibility, when you fail to come, when you fail to be involved, when you fail to give, when you fail to serve, when you fail to sacrifice, when you fail to do the things God has asked you to do by giving you those gifts, the office he gave you, whatever it is, you work against the very spirit of God within you. All Christians, everywhere, every when, The church isn't just everybody in this room. It's not even just everybody who's alive now because all the Christians before were Christians too. They're part of the body. All Christians everywhere and everywhere are connected intimately as parts of the body of Christ. His bride, his church. Ephesians 4.25 says, we're members one of another. We're united by the cross, says in Ephesians 2.16, where God, where Jesus gave himself for us. The bride for his the bridegroom for his bride, Ephesians 5.25. Indeed, this, is, this unity is so key. <laughs> Think about the book of 1 Corinthians. It, it has the most extensive stuff on spiritual gifts, by the way. It, really, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is, is all about it. Think about the church at Corinth. If you haven't read that book, 1 Corinthians, Paul spends 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 talking about problems with their unity. They're all worried about who got baptized by whom and who's this and that. And well, I, my mentor was Paul and I got baptized by Apollos. And he spends four chapters on that before, priority here, before he gets to talking about the fact that they were glorifying their tolerance, 1 Corinthians 5, for letting a guy who's openly sleeping with his father's wife, I guess stepmom, <laughs> ah, just come on in. It's okay. It's no big deal. It's a big deal. I'm sorry. God calls that fornication. It's, it's sexual sin. Oh, no, it's no big deal. Paul talks about unity before that. Okay? The, 1 Corinthians 6. They're suing each other openly in court. 
hey, I'm your brother in Christ, but your fence is on my property, and I'm going to take you to court. Stupid. Everybody knows your business now. You couldn't have resolved that with a counselor at the church? Talk to a pastor or somebody? A deacon? Anyone? Or 1 Corinthians, and this one's, I don't know, to me, the worst when I think it through. 1 Corinthians 11. They were taking the Lord's Supper communion and using it as an excuse to have a party and get drunk. But before Paul gets to that, he says, look, you guys aren't unified, and that's the real problem. Okay, if that's, if that's the view I should have of this unity thing, but, but, but the church at Corinth, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 that they had all the gifts. I mean, they, they, had, they didn't lack in any gifts, he said. But they did lack the perspective. And instead of building something of beauty, they built an eyesore. They caused the Gentiles around them to go, I don't want that. I don't know whatever that Jesus thing is, but you guys are a mess and I don't want anything to do with it. Why? Why would a church so full of gifts be so far off in the plan as they built themselves? As, well, they built themselves. There you go. They lack the right priorities with which to build. We see those priorities in the partial list of gifts in Romans 12, 6 through 8. Read with me. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Remember, we all have spiritual gifts, and they're, they're unique to us as individuals. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. 1 Corinthians 12 lets us know that we have all these things in in different proportions. All right? Differences of administrations. Difference. So when, when you think about it, I mean, you guys... You ever taken one of those personality tests and they have all those questions to figure out who you are and how much of you this and I'm an ENTJ or an IFPQ or I don't know what they Rich and I are almost identical and that's scary. <laughs> we don't look alike. But they have this question. They're trying to figure out what level of this you are and how much of this you are and your spiritual gifts are like that. You're, you're some of this and some of that because you're a unique individual and you don't all have the same gifts or the same amount of all the gifts but you got a gift or gifts, because you got the Holy Spirit. And, and all Christians have spiritual gifts, and, and those gifts differ according to the need of your local church, local in place, like New Philadelphia, Ohio, and local in time, like 2015. You think about it? Like this church was founded 100 years ago, you know, the Civil War kind of was relevant topic back then. They probably had some different needs in the church body back then. So when God was giving out the gifts, he said, hey, I'm going to give them this. The early church in the book of Acts, they're the first church, first churches ever, book of Acts. I'm going to have to give them some different gifts to get this thing started. We've been around a long time, different gifts. Same gift giver, same ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Based on the unmerited favor of God who loves us and wants us to be like him, we have these gifts. And he's given them to us to build the body, never to behave selfishly. 
1 Corinthians 14, 12, in the middle of, of Paul just ripping into the Corinthians, pretty, pretty brutally, honestly, like a very fervent father admonishing a child. He says, Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, good, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. It's about building the church. It's not about you. The church at Corinth lost sight of that. They were concerned with gifts out of order. In all three lists of gifts, in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, foremost are gifts that are essential for the foundation, a firm foundation, those that build strong minds, sober minds, those that make you able to defend against the adversary. Secondary are the gifts that builds, we'll say for the sake of the analogy to home, stylish models, the fine furnishings within, the the finishing touches. And you know what? Those are important too because you're building a house fit for the king of kings. Think of it this way. The church at Corinth had the decor down uh, before the doors. They were worried about the cow should go before the floors. Why? Their selfishness. They were worried about their spiritual mentors and they were bothered about sign gifts. See, laboring night and day to teach people in a small classroom that nobody knows about, or better still, in my opinion, those who labor night and day in prayer and nobody but God knows about it. There are these other gifts like, like speaking in tongues, speaking foreign languages, and, and you, don't, you don't even know you're doing it, by the way, unless somebody stands up and says, dude, I speak Albanian and you're speaking Albanian. I'm like, I'm speaking English, man. I don't know what you're hearing. You're interpreting tongues. Hold on, let's have a, let's have a chat. At Pentecost, Peter's doing that, and we all hear our own language. Man, that's cool looking. David Blaine would love to get in on that. Or whoever the current magician is, I don't know. I'm old enough, I've forgotten. You know, that's, there's actually a guy in the book of Acts who tries to buy spiritual gifts, by the way. He's like, laying on of hands, give me that. I want to make some money on that. It's showy. Miracles. Be healed. Smack him in the head. Say baby. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Yes, everybody older than me got that joke. I knew you people knew me. Uh, it's showy, it's flashy. That's what they wanted because they were selfish. That's the exact opposite of how this works. And, you know, look at it in 1 Corinthians 1 and, and, and chapter 14 extensively, but here's what's really interesting to me about our context in, in Romans. Romans, Romans 1.11. I don't know if it'll be on the screen or not, but I'm going to read it to you. Paul hasn't ever been to the church at Rome, but he says to them, I long to see you. Why, Paul? That I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. It's what God's given me to give to you guys. To the end that ye may be established. I want to build you guys up. I want you to be firm and solid. And maybe as Paul's writing this to the Romans, I don't know the timeline exactly, but I'm pretty sure he'd already dealt with Corinth. Boy, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think he'd be concerned that... that that those believers who he hadn't met in Rome wouldn't wind up like the believers that he had had to deal with in, in Corinth. So how do we defend against this in our body? How, how do we fight the selfishness? How, how do we go against the wrong order? Well, there's our list. It's, it's a simple list, quite honestly, but, well, if I went to every verse that talks about these things, yeah, we'd be here a while. So bear with me. And if you have questions about these, um, somebody can give you my email and I'll send you the verses. 
and verses and verses and verses and verses, or, you know, by a concordance. Number one, prophecy. Speak the truth. What's, what's the truth? Well, the gospel. And how does the, the gospel come? By the foolishness of preaching. It's a voice calling out, Thus saith the Lord. Okay? <laughs> when, when thus saith the Lord comes to the ears of somebody who's never heard what the Lord said, well, that's a new revelation to them. In the Old Testament, that's what prophecy was most of the time. Hey, God's saying something. Well, he never said that before. I know, but he's saying it now. I'm saying it for him. I promise. And, you know, if it didn't come true, they killed the prophet. So, okay. That's, that's prophecy. And if you've heard it before, there were a lot of times the prophets in the Old Testament would say, hey, God said this. Don't you remember? Yeah, yeah, I do. It convicts the spirit in you, convicts you by the word of God. When the, when, the, when the Bible was complete, God stopped giving us new revelation for those of us who have the Bible. But think about this. We're all called to preach at least one thing. By the lives we live and the words we speak, we should be preaching the gospel to everybody around us. We may not all have the gift of prophecy, but, but we all have the ability to give that one prophecy to everybody. Number two, ministry. By definition, ministry is service. It's, it's the daily work of meeting the spiritual needs of the body, whatever those might be. That's a lot of work. And you know what? <laughs> we all have a ministry of reconciliation to give the gospel. We all have a service to give to the world. But there are those who are especially gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve others in the body in, in all kinds of capacities. A main one is to serve them with the word of God. And guess what? Ministers and prophets often go hand in hand. And they really often go hand in hand with the third one. Number three is teachers. Teachers teach doctrine. The core of teaching is making truth understood. It's the defense against false doctrine and the the purveyors thereof. It goes beyond, by the way, what we should already know. All of us are challenged to teach our kids. God has always told parents in all times, in, in Israel he did it in Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6, by the way, you can check that out. He's always told parents, teach your kids my words. We all have that responsibility. If you're a parent, teach your kids God's word. Give your kids the gospel. They should hear it from you before they hear it in church service. Oh, and, and if you give somebody the gospel, you just, you're trying to make a spiritual child. Give your kid the gospel. Give your, feed your kid. We have this ministry of discipleship. Feed your kids. I don't know how. We have classes. Come find out. We'll help you. There's ministers here whose job is to serve you to help you serve others. And teachers here whose job it is to help you teach others. And, and by the way, when teachers do their job, they help you understand that measuring stick of Christ. The measure you meet, that's the one you'll be measured out by. And a lot of people, they want to say, well, then I can't judge anybody's doctrine. I can't, I can't say that, well, that God doesn't say that. I mean, that's awful harsh of me to say, I mean, how can I be sure that God meant, I can't even finish a sentence like that. I don't know how anybody works like that. You know what? My measuring stick will be Christ. If you have a problem with Jesus' divinity, he's God. If you have a problem with his humanity, he became totally human. If you have a problem with his death, there's a whole billion people who don't believe he died on the cross out there, Islam, if you have a problem with him coming back to life 
or if you add anything to that or take anything from that, I measure you by Christ. You're none of his. You don't like that? Take it up with the guy who wrote the book. Your problem's not with me. Your problem's with Jesus. Now, past that stuff, let's chat. We'll work, we'll work through some stuff. And maybe we'll agree to disagree, and maybe we'll disagree to disagree. But if you can't get the measuring rod of Christ down, then uh-uh. Steer clear. Number four. The challenge to comfort in the context of what people are going through. And this is the hinge of these gifts. Exhortation. It takes those words of God that have been preached to you and, and ministered to you and taught to you and it says, hey man, you heard that. So do that. But it does it with long suffering and compassion. And it says, man, I get it. <laughs> no, dude, I done, I've done that too. That's really stupid. Okay, I haven't done that, but I understand. We're all sinners and we're messed up. And it admonishes like a loving father. It disciplines like a mother who cares for you and cared for you when you couldn't care for yourself and wiped your bottom for you. And you get that, parents? Come on. Good parents understand you've got to discipline the kid or they're going to be a horrible disaster. You don't have to be a jerk about it, though. That's exhortation. Chastises and rebukes when you need it, but does it with the, the perspective of laying down crowns. Hi, if I can get this through your head, Someday you'll stand before Christ and you'll throw this at his feet and give him glory and, oh, that's cool. <laughs> if I can just get this across to you, you're being so dumb right now, but, but you could be so cool because God loves you and he wants you to do this with you. And that's exhortation. And it moves us from, from the sound mind and, and the building up of the foundation into putting the couch in. I think the painting goes on the wall there and Making it pretty for Jesus. And then five. All right, so now we're working on the furnishings. We're, we're looking. Giving. This is the ability to offer willingly and cheerfully, sincerely, of your physical treasures. Okay? Look, if every time you put an offering in the plate, you, oh God, I can't believe I have to give you stuff that he gave you. You probably don't have the gift of giving, okay? Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't give as you've been blessed. We're all called to do that, and, and you should check your attitude. But there are those, the Bible says God gives you the ability to make stuff, to make money, to, to physically make stuff. Um, by the way, there are those who can physically build the church, the building that we meet in. They aren't building the spiritual church, but hey, and I like the roof over our heads today, don't you? I remember some guys who built this building. I, I, I pulled up carpet in here once. I didn't do it with the young guys the last time, man. I'm, okay, I'm not that young anymore. I got little kids. They're my, they were my excuse. I got to go home. It's nap time. I'm sorry, guys. You're 15. Go tear up carpet. <laughs> Give of your physical stuff, man. And if, you, if that just charges you and, you're, you know, and it's not a burden to you at all, maybe you got a gift of giving. Man, if you're just really, really talented at just pulling in the cash and you're just like, ah, this, none of this is mine. This is all God's. You take it all, God. Local church, here you go. Open the coffers. And maybe that's you. Physical gifts. We all need to give physically, but, but there are those who are truly blessed in how they do it. It's number six. Leading. Ruling. Justly. 
fervently watching for the souls of the flock. It's a principle found in Proverbs, by the way. That the, the diligent shepherd. Diligent to inquire where, where the individuals stand. And acting as faithful stewards to give them meat. Meat to the household. Faithful stewards. What is meat in the word of God? It's, it's compared to the scriptures. Especially those who lead us in sound words and doctrine. You know what, husbands, fathers, you're called to be a ruler of your house. Now, don't abuse that. <laughs> because a good king, servants and subjects love him and want to do what he says. Crummy kings get assassinated. Hey, man, read Greek tragedies. Crummy, crummy dads get assassinated. Okay? I know, it's 21st century. That doesn't happen in America. I don't know, read the papers. <sighs> We, we all have a responsibility, man, to lead. But there are those who have a greater responsibility to rule over us, and they're in charge. And if you have some bad things to say about them, you better say it to them. Because if you're talking smack about your pastors and leaders to everybody else, you got a problem with God. Because he gifted them to be in charge of this stuff. And he didn't put you in that place, maybe for a reason. Seven. Mercy. Man, this is far surpassing the kindness we should all have. I mean, we should all. Look, your, 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 your husband just died. I love you. I don't know how to help. Just to, Man, if you don't have a natural response to somebody going through tragedy to hug them and care for them, they lost their job, they lost, it, come on, something's wrong. But there are those who are supernaturally gifted to give people exactly what they need in moments like that. They, they see the poor and the broken and they know what to do to meet their needs, not just their physical ones. And think about this. In a world that is currently, temporarily, but currently ruled by the prince of the power of the air, our adversary, the devil, anytime we fail or anytime anything bad happens, our natural reaction is to say, oh, it must be my fault some way. You realize that most kids who are in therapy, in, in therapy somewhere have internalized something their parents did and think it's their fault whether it's parents left or, or tragic loss of a parent or they were abused. Where does that guilt and shame come from on a child? That's not from God. That's from the adversary. And there are those who are supernaturally gifted to help those kids. Or maybe those kids when they grow up and they're in jail. Addicted to drugs. Because you really need mercy. Somebody who won't judge you for what you deserve to be judged for when you grow up and you're a mess. That list should sound familiar. Um, Second Peter says something about faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness. Oh, and by the way, Romans 12 is about to continue with uh, let love. That's charity. Hey, I'm not saying they're exactly the same lists, but sure line up a lot if you ask me. So what's the result? What's the result of all this when it goes according to plan, when we're not the church at Corinth? We build the right package deal. Remember how this started? 
Last week, Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Notice your reasonable service starts with your bodies, plural with plural. All y'all, all your bodies, get them up on the altar. They belong to God. Die to self. Just do it. All right, and every one of you, renewed mind. Colossians 3.10 says the mind is renewed in knowledge. And that's the word of God, if you ask me. To be like Jesus' mind. Oh, we all renew our minds to be like his mind. Okay. And, and these are individual spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2.5 tells us that, that we're, we're lively stones, or we're building a building of living sacrifices, plural. But Romans 12.1 is singular. A living sacrifice. Body, soul, spirit. When we work together as a body, when we are a church the way we're supposed to be, we give God an offering that is triune like he is. And ever since the beginning, God has always wanted to make man in his image. Three in one. So, I'm out of time. I used it all. I'm about to get off this stage. So happy. By the way, I didn't tell you this when I started, but when I got up here in 1982, uh, I threw up. <laughs> it was right about down there. The carpet was blue back then, so it hit it really well. And then they will put me in the pew instead of letting me stay up here. It's probably a good reason. I didn't do that today. I'm so happy. <laughs> Romans 12. I didn't give, this isn't an exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts, and I didn't exhaust it. And I'm kind of exhausted, but <laughs> I'm going to stop. Hasn't been 12 hours. Hasn't quite been one. But I think you should take the class. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you that your word is your word.